Sentire media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 47. Bye bye Byzantines. The end of Byzantine Italy. Part 1. First of all, dear listeners, I grovel at your feet. Forgive me. I have been over a week late coming out with the episode. Unfortunately, March and April are my busy periods, and so I'm going to have a little bit of trouble coming out with a weekly episode. Therefore, let's agree for the moment to do one every two episodes with the hope that I can do it more frequently, and then back in May, when spring is really here and the flowers are blooming, we can get back to a regular schedule. The episode you are about to listen to is another Looking Back episode, this time looking back at the Byzantine presence in Italy, starting with the Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian's campaign to bring the western provinces of his empire back into the fold. It works as a recap for the regular listeners with a few added details here and there, or as a standalone for those who happen to stumble upon it. We have mentioned the Byzantines many times over the course of the podcast, but not really concentrated on them and their administration of the peninsula. They've been sort of like furniture in the background, poor Byzantines. Please forgive us. I hope this will make up for the neglect. They may, however, be even further offended by the fact that I am actually calling them Byzantines. Indeed, in episode 41 of The History of Byzantium, Robin Pearson tells us that they would have referred to themselves as Romans. Indeed, if you go to where we are starting from, the Gothic War, and you look at the main source for that war, Procopius, you will find in those pages that he does indeed refer to the Byzantines as Romans. Anyway, I don't want to go too far off on that tangent, and so I really do recommend you check out episode 41 of the History of Byzantium. Before we really get into the action, a little disclaimer on names. Since we are taking a general overview, we're going to cover a lot of ground. There will be loads of names. Don't worry too much about remembering them all. We'll focus on the takeaway issues at the end. In 535, with the landing of the great general Belisarius in Sicily, the Gothic War began, and it would last until around 554, when the Byzantine representative and general in Italy, the eunuch Narses, saw off the last of the Frankish raiders in the north and the pockets of Gothic resistance around the peninsula. If you want to hear more about the Gothic War, you can go all the way back to episodes 4 and 5 of this podcast. With the end of that war, Narses, with the title of patrician, had the daunting task of bringing the peninsula back to some semblance of normality. The country had suffered through decades of war, and on top of that, famine and plague. 
Many cities had been completely destroyed, such as Naples, which had sided with the Goths and been destroyed by the Byzantines, and Milan, which had sided with the Byzantines and been destroyed by the Goths. Sicily would be an exception in the new administration, since it was under the direct rule of Constantinople. The Byzantine emperor Justinian was pragmatic enough to also recognize another aspect of the new Italian reality, and that was the fact that the power vacuum left by the civil administration before and after the fall of the Western Roman Empire had been filled by the religious authorities in the cities, the bishops. Now, with the Pragmatica Sanzione document, the emperor recognized this power. Unfortunately, we don't really have hard figures on the rebuilding of the Italian cities under the administration of Constantinople. Italy was not included in Procopius's De Edificus about the rebuilding of the Western Empire. Whatever work the new regime was going to do, they were going to need money. And the only real way for them to get any money was to tax the pants off the local population with their sophisticated Byzantine system. Indeed, to this day in Italy, the term Byzantino is used to describe complex, sometimes overly intricate, bureaucracy. Needless to say, the heavy taxation was never really popular with the locals, and this would come back to haunt the Byzantines later down the line. To help with the collection, in 541, a certain official called Alexander, nicknamed the Cutter, was sent over and he started to claim back taxes all the way back to the time of King Theodoric of the Goths, 20 years before. Under the government of Narses, the domination of the whole Italian peninsula lasted until 568, the year in which the Lombards entered Italy. For more on this, and the interesting soap opera of King Albuin of the Lombards and his wife Rosamunda, you can go back to episode 6, Here Come the Lombards. The Lombards met very little resistance and conquered most of northern Italy, except for Venice and Liguria, central Italy, except for the area around Ravenna and Rome, and all the way down to Benevento in the south. The Byzantine army was busy on the eastern front, fighting the Persians, or closer, with the Avars. It must have been really annoying to have lost the territory after they had only just finished winning it back. This started a long period in which the Lombards and the Byzantines fought it out with the latter continuing to lose ground, but holding on to what they had for dear life, thanks to some shrewd political manoeuvring and bribery. Narses had been substituted by Longinus before the invasion, and some say it was due to this snub that he invited the Lombards to invade, although this conspiracy theory has been somewhat discredited. It seems that Longinus 
was also a pretty cunning guy, intervening to help Queen Rosamunda after she had had her husband killed and ran away with his killer, after apparently tricking him into doing so. Then, once in Ravenna, the two ended up poisoning each other. In the year 576, Constantinople tried with a new military intervention, sending General Baduarius, but he was defeated and later died in Italy. The following year, the Roman nobles sent a delegation with a pretty hefty sum to go and ask for more troops to help. The answer was that there were no more troops to send, and they should instead use the money to try and bribe the notoriously independently-minded Lombard dukes to stir up trouble in the Lombard camp. This approach worked quite well, with the Lombard dukes often siding with the Byzantines against their various kings, especially the southern duchies of Benevento and Spoleto, which were comfortably far from the Lombard capital of Pavia. The complicated situation in Italy required an administration with greater powers than elsewhere in the empire. That is why the figure of the Exarch was created. This was a military leader, like the Magister Militum, but was also tasked with a diplomatic and administrative role. We have the first trace of the term being used from a letter by Pope Pelagius on the 4th of October, 584. This would have been at the start of the reign of Emperor Maurice, who held the position from 582 to 602. By the way, isn't that a cute name for an Eastern Roman Emperor Maurice? Makes him sound really cuddly. The capital of the Exarchate was Ravenna, until the city finally fell to the Lombards in 751. Having said this, it was not all that easy to govern such a patchwork area with success, considering also the fact that the good old Roman roads were gradually deteriorating. For this reason, a dux or magister militum was set up in areas such as Veneto, Liguria, the Pentapolis, which was Rimini, Pesaro, Fano, Sinigalia and Ancona, stretching south from Ravenna, as well as Perugia, Rome and Naples, as long as these holdings lasted in Byzantine hands. This may have made things a bit easier to govern, but it also meant that these dukes, with the ebb and flow of Byzantine attention to Italy, would gradually become more and more independent, especially in Venice, where the dukes then became the Doges, and in Naples. At the same time, they continued the strategy of containing, as much as possible, the Lombard expansion with money. This was helped by the fact that the Lombards were not at all seafaring people, so for them, taking cities such as Genoa, Pisa and Livorno and holding them against attacks from the sea was a bit more complicated. Also, the Lombards really like money, don't we all? Another strategy attempted was to use the rising power of the Franks 
to counter that of the Lombards. This definitely created trouble for the Lombards, but for the moment it had no definitive effect. So they went back to using bribery to pay the Lombard dukes off and even hired them for military uses elsewhere in the empire. Indeed, there are records of Lombards fighting on the Persian front. We also have many Italians moving east to escape the invasion, such as many Roman nobles who ended up living in Constantinople, or even cases of commuters, such as the noble Sicilian Vanazio and his wife Italica, who would move between Sicily and Constantinople, sort of like having a holiday home, I suppose. As we said, we're taking a very general overview of things, but we need to now look a little more in-depth at an event to understand some of the geography of Byzantine Italy. In the year 590, a new exarch was nominated, Roman, or Romanus. He once again started up hostilities against the Lombards, which had been dormant for a while, bringing in the Franks to help. But just as the Byzantines and Franks were ready to move in for the crushing blow, the Franks just went off and left. The year after, a certain Ariulf became Duke of Spoleto, and he took advantage of the opening of hostilities to expand and take the Umbrian Corridor away from the empire. Basically, in the complicated geographical patchwork that was Italy in this time, the Exarchate had the area around Ravenna in the northeast and that around Rome in the centre-west, and the two were connected by a strip of land that acted as a corridor to unite the two parts passing through Umbria. This is a bit like having two bits of your apartment connected by a hallway, and at a certain point, your pushy, uncouth and uncivilised neighbour takes the hallway and won't let you pass. Maybe he even throws out your lovely collection of potted cacti and other assorted plants and puts his own there, or lets his annoying children hang around in the landing. How rude! This is when the Pope of Rome stepped up and took things into his own hands. The Pope in question was Gregory, who would become one day one of the only two Popes known as the Great. He repeatedly asked Exarch Romanus for help, but none came. So he took matters into his own hands and tried to set up peace talks with the Lombards. It was the start of papal involvement in national and international politics, and that would last to this day. The exarch was not at all pleased about this. In 592, he sailed around Italy to land in Rome and take back the corridor, which he did. Obviously, this put the idea of making peace and soothing the situation of the Roman people completely out of the mind of the Lombards, whose king, Agilulf, laid siege to Rome and only left after being paid 5,000 pounds of gold. Now, I haven't had a lot of time to investigate the matter, 
But I sort of wonder why the Exarch felt the need to sail all the way around Italy and taking back the corridor from Rome. Going back to our metaphor, it would be like trying to take your hallway back by climbing down the fire escape to one part of your apartment, then climbing up the fire escape to the other part and taking back the hallway from there. There must obviously have been some good reason. Perhaps he thought that if he came from the rear, they would have trouble turning around. A bit like Ben Stiller in Zoolander when he can't turn left. Anyway, it worked, and they got the corridor back. With the death of Romanus in 596, an armed peace was, for a little while at least, finally possible. With the start of the 7th century, the empire went through a period in which it was forced to basically ignore the western provinces. This distraction soon resulted in a rebellion in the Exarchate. This started among soldiers who had not been paid, but the local population soon joined in. In this rebellion, the Exarch, Giovanni, was killed. Naples also saw a power grab by a local noble named Giovanni da Conza. The emperor sent a new exarch, Eleuterio, to suppress both rebellions, which he did, executing those responsible. Unfortunately, power seemed to have gone to the head of the new exarch, and he decided to crown himself Western Roman Emperor. He fished around for some ecclesiastical figure who would be willing to crown him, and was ready and was ready to head down to Rome when he was assassinated by soldiers loyal to the emperor. If he had made his way down to Rome to be crowned, it would have been the first example in history of an emperor going to Rome to be crowned by the Pope. Funny, eh? Wouldn't be for a while yet. Now that we are in the 7th century, a major factor in the mid-600s that would plague the Byzantines in Italy for the rest of their time there was the first Arab incursions into Sicily and along the coast of southern Italy. Let's put a pin in that, but remember it. Also, the ascension to the throne of the Lombard king Rothery meant new trouble for the Exarchate. Indeed, Rothery took the last two remaining cities in the Veneto area, defeated the Byzantines in the Battle of Sculterna, in which the Exarch at the time, Isaccio, was also killed. Although Rothery threatened Ravenna itself, he was not able to take it. The Exarchate would last a little while longer. So, just to give you some takeaways there, we started off with the Gothic War in which the Byzantines defeated the Goths. Then, not even 15 years after the end of the war, the Lombards invaded, and that created a situation in which Italy was split between the Byzantines and the Lombards, with the Lombards continuously encroaching on Byzantine territory, taking it bit by bit. The Byzantines were unable to intervene militarily with any success, so most of the time they used diplomacy, politics and bribery to cause trouble among the various Lombard dukes, putting them against each other and against their king. To deal with the situation, the Exarchate was created, 
governing over the Byzantine lands in Italy, and at his head was placed an exarch. Another important player which came to prominence in this period was also the papacy and the Catholic Church. Thanks very much to everyone for listening, as always. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters. We've now reached a lovely little family of 20, a score, if you will, with the addition of Maddie and Scott into the Matilda of Canossa and Mazzini level. So that's Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Sean, Jeff and Ed. The Matilda di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Benjamin, Roberta, YR, Maddie and Scott. The Margherita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay, Shelby, Caitlin, Ben, Dean, Ignazio and Selene. And the top level, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri, Sen. Thank you, thank you to all of you. Also, thanks to Scott, who has sent an email encouraging me to go on. Don't worry, I'm not giving up. It's just a bit of a busy period. Thank you very much. That's the kind of thing which really does help keep on keeping on. You can, like them if you want, become a Patreon donor. Go over to patreon.com slash a history of Italy, where you can also get some extra content. And a news cappuccino is coming out very soon which is entitled Doing the Little Shoe and Other Untranslatable Italian Expressions. So look out for that one. You can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com or go over to our website, ahistoryofitaly.com and click through to our social media, Facebook and Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks again to everyone very much for listening and until next time, arrivederci. Sir, the troops are ready. Very well. Take them to the ships. Ships, sir? Yes, we will navigate around Italy. But the enemy is just over there, sir. Haha, we will catch them by surprise behind their backs. But can't they, like, just turn around? Ah. A simple soldier does not understand the complications of military strategy. But military strategy is just turning around? Off you go now. There's a good little soldier. Whatever. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy.
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.